Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's been seven years in the making. Some said it wouldn't happen in their lifetime. Coming soon, the Chilcott Report. 150 witnesses, 130 sessions, and 150,000 documents now compiled into 2.6 million words in the most boring read you'll ever have, despite using terms like weapons of mass destruction. Is Tony Blair guilty of a war crime? Or were those Iraqi children and British troops just asking for it? Only one way to find out. Read The Chilcott Report. Available in one boring-to-read segment, July the 6th. Order now for special edition, containing pull-out, make-your-own-WMDs that won't be found with any purchase. Special photos of the original statement made by George W. Bush, written in his own crayons. Limited edition Tony Blair Middle East Peace Envoy gloves with permanently extended middle finger. And one million miniature protester models that you can ignore in your very own home. Welcome to another episode of the Partly Political Broadcast. I'm Tiernan Duyeb, and despite it looking pretty hairy at points, I managed to keep my seat last week. And I should say that even though predictions said that I wouldn't, my seat is in pretty much the same position that it was, despite me needing to move it slightly for comfort. Well, what a week it's been, eh? I mean, hot weather, a new Radiohead album, and Leicester winning the Premier League. Unfortunately, there were also several elections, and as this podcast has built a tradition over 15 episodes to only mention fun things in life when they're being destroyed by politicians, well, today's show is all about the results. Well, not all. I mean, I have an interview with Joint Executive Director of Hacked Off, Evan Harris, and I'll also be looking at if a party does enough U-turns, is it just constantly revolving backwards? Oh, and today's show also contains one Game of Thrones spoiler. So if you're not up to season six, episode three, well, I mean, to be honest, I don't care. That's your fault for not watching telly quick enough. 
thanks for the extra reviews on the iTunes page. It really does help bring more listeners into the show and is very, very helpful on feedback. I mean, for example, I now know that this show has one listener in Thailand who would like to hear about more Scottish politics. Uh, sort of just in case the weather over there is too nice, they want a little memory. Uh, and so I'm going to endeavour to do a bit more of that anyway on the show. Um, this episode has a tiny bit more of what goes on beyond the wall. And at some point, I've got an interviewee lined up who's going to chat a bit more in depth about Holyrood as the only real knowledge I know about that place is that nearby is a really great baked tatty shop where they do potatoes roughly as big as my face. Uh, working out the logistics of trying to eat one is never not fun. I mean, what if it eats me first and takes over from my actual head and then I have to walk around like Mr. Potato Head having to constantly remove my own features? Ugh, there's so much to think about. So, yeah, uh, please keep reviewing the show and sharing it online and maybe just whispering it quietly at people as they walk past you. Partly political broadcast. You know, they'll probably be quite freaked out and, let's be honest, are unlikely to check out the show, but over time, we will have created the world's biggest game of Chinese whispers and eventually someone will walk past me and whisper, peanut particle broadsheets, and I'll feel like I've achieved something in life. Oh yeah, and I still have a sore throat because it's not as if I need to talk for a living or anything. Hooray, thanks world. Right, now on with all of this sort of thing. U-turns! No U-turns! Yeah, U-turns, eh? You can't go anywhere for all these U-turns the government are making. I mean, literally, that is the point of a U-turn. The Conservatives have now added their proposed plan to turn all schools into academies to their very long list of policies that they've U-turned on since May. So that's U-turning on taking in 3,000 child refugees, which they also did last week, tax credit cuts, extended Sunday trading hours, high-speed broadband for every home, disability benefit cuts, well, sort of, stopping in-work benefits for EU migrants, running parts of the Saudi Arabia prison system, withdrawing from the European Convention of Human Rights, and further police cuts. And if you add to all that the U-turns they've made since 2010 when they're in a Hope Coalition government, then there's also... <sighs> U-turns on rape defendants' anonymity, selling off the forest, no school milk for the under five, scrapping book tar, immigration target policy, circus animal ban, scrapping relief on video games tax, granny tax, pasty tax, caravan tax, school sports cuts, forces cuts, NHS competition regulations and minimum alcohol pricing. Saying that U-turns are a bad thing, I mean in fact, sometimes they're great. Like this U-turn on turning all schools into academies, which has made many teachers and parents very happy. Education Secretary Nicky Morgan, you know the one who always looks like a cartoon dog, whose name has maybe been called over a tannoy, but she thinks it's an invisible force and can't work out where it comes from. Well, she said they'd no longer be bringing in legislation to force blanket conversion. Which is good, because I like my blanket exactly how it is. It's very warm. The government's legislation still includes controversial plans to remove rights of parents to be represented on school governor boards. And schools in certain offset categories are still forced to undergo academization. Academization? Academization. Good word, isn't it? But look, overall, this step back from Mickey Morgan is one step towards saving the education system from being dismantled. However, this many U-turns do mean that the government are just churning out policies without much thought as to how they'll be perceived or challenged. And the time and effort taken on these policies that are then rejected is time and effort not spent on things that are needed like prison reform or steps for better mental health care provision that the government promised they'd do and absolutely haven't. And you sort of wonder what kind of government we do have when they're U-turning so often they're essentially just running around in circles. I mean, what will their 2020 manifesto be? Conservatives. Turning our back on your and our own policies. 
remember way back in 2012 that classic series called The Leveson Inquiry? You remember it? Yeah, you know, that really fun reality TV show where they got together a bunch of MPs, celebs, journalists and newspaper moguls all to sit in a room for months and raise awareness about memory loss. Do you recall? Because, I mean, they mostly didn't. And then, do you remember, after we all got bored watching James Murdoch dodge more bullets than the characters in The Matrix, Lord Justice Leveson published a 2,000-page report that found press behaviour outrageous, but obviously still liked it enough to use some headline terms to describe it. He also recommended the government implement an independent press watchdog, which would be underpinned by legislation. Do you remember that? And then, as a result... Prime Minister David Cameron, the man who wanted to go ahead with the inquiry in the first place in 2011, decided he didn't want a press law at all. Possibly because the report was 2,000 pages long, and let's be honest, we all struggle with a long read nowadays, eh? Well, that's not entirely true. I mean, a royal charter rather than an act of parliament was put into place that allowed press self-regulation. And since then, all the press have totally abided by it, which is why we have a bias-free, balanced media in the UK. Am I right? No, sorry. I mean, what I mean is, several empires like Rupert Murdoch's empire or Trinity Mirror have completely resisted doing this. And in the last few weeks, with reports about the Evening Standard's clear support of Zach Goldsmith's mayoral campaign, while pretending to be non-partisan, it is clear that further action is still needed. So this week, well, actually two weeks ago, I spoke to Dr Evan Harris, who is the Joint Executive Director of Hacked Off, a campaign for a free and accountable press. Evan very kindly explained what it's all about, why they kicked up a fuss about the recent John Whittingdale non-story story, and generally made me realise I really didn't understand the Leveson Inquiry at all. This interview contains a lot of me being wrong. Have a listen. Do you think that the press has become more regulated since the Leveson Inquiry? No, it's become neither more regulated nor better regulated nor more independently regulated. Leveson was very clear when he said that the existing system of self-regulation could not continue, could not continue. And what we have seen so far is a continuation of the self-regulation that he said must end. There was something called the Press Complaints Commission. Everyone agreed it had failed. And what they've replaced it with, what the press have sought to replace it with, is something called, satirically I think, the Independent Press Standards Organisation, which is very much like the Press Complaints Commission. It's got the same company number, it's founded by the same people and has the same industry control that led to the failure of the Press Complaints Commission. So it's self-regulation, it's marking their own homework all over again. And if this was any other industry, banks, lawyers, doctors, any other profession that had been found to have been engaged in widespread criminality and bad practice, under the noses of a compliant regulator, because it was regulating itself, the press would be screaming from the front pages that people had to go and the system had to change and self-regulation had to end. But because it's themselves, they hypocritically not only don't do that, but seek to veto the recommendations of a judge-led inquiry. And we're campaigning with the majority support of the public to ensure that they don't get away with that. And why, why do you think then a, a royal charter was used rather than, say, an act of parliament, um, you know, allowing press to keep regulating itself? Why do you think that the government went with that option after Leveson? Well, that wasn't the that wasn't why it still remains voluntary. What Leveson said was that he wanted to give the press one more chance 
to organize their own regulation, but crucially, it would be independent, not purely self-regulation, because in order to pass the test that he set, it would have to be independently audited by an MOT body, if you like, as independent and effective. And he said that body, this audit body, should be set up by, by statute, by an act of parliament. And what the agreement was in an effort to appease the press was that that audit body should be set up by royal charter. But that doesn't make it any more compulsory. It was established to be an incentivized voluntary system where if they didn't comply, in the first instance, there would be penalties for those that didn't comply. What the government have recently done is cancel those penalties, which is a reneging on the Prime Minister's promise to Parliament, to the public and to victims of press abuse, a solemn promise he gave them, which I witnessed on a number of occasions. Uh, but nevertheless, what Leveson said was that we should start off with an incentivized voluntary system of self-regulation that was was recognised, was MOT'd as independent and effective, and only if that didn't work would Parliament have to act to impose independent regulation, the sort of regulation that applies to the BBC and ITV, which is independent, it's not government-controlled, but it's statutory. And I think we may well be approaching that stage. So at what point do you do, will they decide that it's not working then? Because obviously you said that it hasn't become more regulated. And, uh, I know there's been uh, definitely privacy breaches in the press since then. Um, at what point can you suddenly say, right, the, they've had their one more chance? Well, firstly, it's not just about privacy breaches. In fact, privacy breaches, you can take legal action if you can afford a lawyer. The The regulation is about much more than things where you can have a, a civil claim. Uh, accuracy, uh, intrusion, uh, intrusion into private grief, uh, the treatment of children, a whole things that are grossly discriminatory, those sorts of things currently are being arbitrated by an organisation which is almost entirely on the side of the press. And you can see it. You don't have to know individual cases. There has never been a case where a front page breach of the editor's own code has been corrected on the front page. So no one who has been misled by a false statement, a false and damaging statement, um, can ever say that they've had an equal opportunity to be unmisled by a front page apology or correction. Um, so we have this system that still isn't working. And the, the agreement that was set out in Parliament was that the Royal Charter body, this MOT body that's supposed to approve regulators as being effective and independent, which has never had the chance to do that for this one because it hasn't taken itself along for the MOT, knowing as a clapped out banger, if I can extend this tortuous analogy, that it would fail the MOT. That body, the, which is called the Press Recognition Panel, set up by Royal Charter to do this checking, has to issue a report in, um, in a few months to say whether the system is working. Now, it's obvious that it isn't, but it's important that no politician makes that judgment, that there's an independent body that makes that judgment. And when that happens, we think it'll be time for Parliament to say, right, the press have had three years since Leveson to comply with the Leveson inquiry. We're going to accept what Leveson said, which is that if you don't clean up your own act, we'll have to get an independent body to do it for you compulsorily. It will no longer be voluntary. Now, I think that would be a pity if that has to happen, even on a temporary basis. 
but we cannot have a situation where there is gross violations of the rights of thousands of ordinary people in the in the hacking trial and thousands of others in relation to uh, other matters. And there's a judge-led inquiry. Parliament votes overwhelmingly for change and uh, and a powerful corporate body like the press industry uh, is able to ignore it. We can't have that situation if we believe in the rule of law and in democracy. But do you think with, I mean, it it, it does seem, especially sort of people like myself, that a, a lot of the press works in favour of the government uh, and in favour of certain policies. I mean, you can see it in the last couple of weeks with the doctor's strike, for example. There's a lot of headlines that say this is threatening patients, whereas it's not saying the contract is awful. You know, it doesn't give both sides. Um, do you think, considering that a lot of the press seems to work in favour of the government, that the government would stamp down on it? You know, well, surely this works to their benefit, so well, it's not necessarily in their interest to control it, is it? Well, there's two points you raise. Um Firstly, and most importantly, it is the case that Leveson found and David Cameron and others admitted that politicians had become too close to the press and that they were seeking to buy favour with the press and therefore letting them off and giving them favours. And there was altogether a too close relationship. Huge hypocrisy from newspapers that says our job is to hold the government to account, but then used to have cosy dinners and sleepovers with the with prime ministers or their spouses. So so that was deemed by Leveson to be unacceptable and admitted to be unacceptable. And the prime minister said that would change. However, it's true that this government has slipped back. And again, that is not acceptable to the British people to see the cozying up between David Cameron and Rupert Murdoch and Rebecca Brooks all over again. It is correct, though, that in a, in a free country, the press, as opposed to broadcast, which is on a limited spectrum and beams into people's homes, the press is allowed to be partisan, although their own code says they have to separate news stories from comment. Now, if they followed that, the Daily Mail would not print any day. But but, but nevertheless, that's their aspiration. But no one is arguing, and nor did Leveson argue, that the press is not allowed to be biased in a way that the BBC or, or ITV or commercial radio stations are not allowed to be biased. But what is the case is that that bias should not be reproduced, uh, should not be reciprocated by our parliament and by our democratic institutions. So yes, they're going to be partisan, they're going to lie effectively about the doctor's strike. Twas ever thus. We can hope that the, the, that the ownership of newspapers means that there are voices from across the spectrum although clearly there's a predominance of right-wing newspapers in this country because rich men, and it is men, tend to buy newspapers uh, in order to promote their views. Um, so we can hope that there's still at least a spectrum. But nevertheless, what we must demand is that that politicians don't kowtow to the press in quite the way they're doing at the moment. And that, again, is part of the hacked-off campaign. Sure. And was that why also hacked-off... Uh... Uh, recently spoke out quite a lot about the John Whittingdale scandal story. Um, and I know there was a part of that that was sort of uh, concerned that the press had covered it up because of the relationship with John Whittingdale. Is that correct? Or or was it more to do with the fact that, you know, John Whittingdale does have connections with Murdoch uh, and he's the culture secretary and media secretary and probably shouldn't uh, have connections in those ways? Again, it's it's a complex situation, too complex for 
um, the, the Telegraph, for example, to understand and represent fairly. But there are a number of stories about John Whittingdale's private life, which on balance, I don't think are worthy of publication because he has a right to privacy. The newspapers have a right to freedom of expression. In this country, we do a balance between whether there is a public interest uh, in exposing the information, which means that the freedom of expression right trumps the right to privacy of the subject. In respect to the fact, if it's true, that he went out with someone who was a professional dominatrix and didn't know it for six months because they don't give any clues, um, uh, dominatrices, you can't tell, um, that may not be in the public interest. Similarly, the fact that he had another girlfriend, ex-page three, model who'd starred in some pornographic films, uh, for whom he sent a picture of checkers, breached the security guidance. Again, that's probably exaggerated as to whether that's sufficient public interest or the fact that she alleges that um, he was able to, she was able to look in his red box, which is not a euphemism. It, uh, <laughs> well, it's a euphemism, but it's also the, the briefcase where he carries his papers. Now, I actually don't think that any of those merited uh, publication, but the newspapers don't normally have any qualms about publishing that sort of stuff, either because they take a different view from me about what's a genuine public interest or because they don't care. So if it was any other politician, especially uh, from a party that they don't agree with, though to be fair to the tabloids, they're not that fussy politically across the spectrum. They love Tory MPs with their trousers down. It, it's, a, it's an extra something. They would normally have published that. We asked that. We didn't ask the question. And a, a senior journalist from The Independent, in fact, too, asked the question, why didn't they publish this when they knew about it years ago? Um, and someone at The Independent told them that their landlord, that's The Independent's landlord, the Daily Mail, said that they, did, they could have published it, but they didn't want to publish it because they wanted to retain John Whittingdale, who was at that point the chairman of the Media Select Committee, as an asset. And even more so, I guess, when he became a minister. Now, I can't prove that. I can only go on the well-sourced information of two senior broadsheet journalists with no axe to grind. But that's what we were concerned about. And that's all we've ever commented on. We've never commented upon um, the particular issues in his private life, even though some of them do raise public interest questions in respect of his relationship with certain Ukrainian businessmen, for example. Now, we've got no proof because you don't find letters saying, I agree to do your bidding if you don't publish this story about my private life. But what would be so much easier if they did, wouldn't it? It would be easier to, to find that, 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 uh, that billet do. But what we do know is that he didn't tell the prime minister that the press had this on him when he took on the job, which would have been wise, because then at least he can say, look, I recorded it and I made clear to him this was happening, but it wasn't going to affect my judgment. And also, and this is important, he has decided against government previous policy and against what Leveson said, and indeed against what um, both hacked off and the newspapers, one thing we agree on, he's taken ministerial executive power over the press. So he has chosen not to sign an order bringing into effect an act of parliament or a section of an act of parliament that would... Um, penalised newspapers for not joining the regulator which had the MOT um, and would benefit newspapers that did join a regulator that had the MOT. And secondly, he's decided to say it will be in his discretion 
whether the Leveson inquiry is completed, whether the, that part of the inquiry that was put on hold to deal with the while the prosecutions took place, and therefore couldn't take place while the prosecutions were ongoing, which are supposed to look into uh, allegations of police corruption and political corruption, he's taken it upon himself to decide whether that will take place at all. Not when, but whether. Now, he didn't have to do either of those things. He could have signed that order as normal, and he could have stuck to the Prime Minister's promise to victims that part two of the Leveson inquiry will take place when the prosecutions are finally over. But he's taken this discretionary power, and we've had no explanation from him, and we've sorted, as to why he's chosen to take this power that no other minister has ever had, and which Leveson and his government's policy said no minister should ever have. We suspect it's because it would have, would have enabled him, had the story not otherwise got out, to hold something over the press. And we'll get back to Evan Harris in just a minute. But first... So, last week, thousands of people across the UK put small crosses in little boxes. Yeah, I have no idea why so many hamsters died on Thursday either. Perhaps it was out of sheer boredom at the election. Because, let's face it, as results rolled in, we heard that they were disastrous for Labour, or amazing for Labour, or zombie results, which were neither of those things, but somehow worse for Labour than any other result, despite the fact that getting votes from the mindless hordes is what they'll need to do to win in 2020. The Conservatives, who lost more seats than Labour in England, did really well in Scotland, meaning that there are now more Tories than Pandas. Either that's a sign of changing times for the Scots, or a very clever incentive to encourage Tian Tian and Yuan Guan to get breeding ASAP. And for some odd reason, people seem to remember who the Liberal Democrats were, and obviously found it comforting to vote for a party who are no longer selling off British assets and destroying the NHS, nor are they tearing themselves apart with infighting. Though that is probably because there's only eight of them left, and most of them look like they'd struggle to roll their sleeves up before even getting to fisticuffs. And let's face it, Tim Farron looks like he's going to cry all the time anyway, so it's not really much of a challenge. There were, of course, bazillions of things being voted for last week, so here is a bit of a guide to what went what way and who what where what. Except for the police commissioner polls, because, let's face it, no one gives a shit. I mean, the public could have voted for a hobby horse, a deaf penguin, and a lemon that someone drew a face on to be in charge of various police forces, and I doubt anyone would actually notice. Well, except for the police commissioner face on a lemon, who'd be really bitter about it. No, I am not sorry that I've said that joke. Deal with it. Okay, so here we go. London! London has a new mayor in the shape of Sadiq Khan. I mean, it is Sadiq Khan, it's not just a cut out of his shape. Although, let's face it, that would probably still do more for the capital than previous mayor Boris Johnson. I mean, Boris's greatest achievements were really only getting stuck on a zip wire, rugby tackling a child, building a cable car over the only bit of London that people hate looking at from the ground level, and closing 10 fire stations, making over 50 firefighters lose their jobs. And he did that because he said, well, there's a lot less fire now than there was in the 90s. You can't do supply and demand on a fire, you bellend. It's not a fashion trend. It is fire. And really, that was such a short-sighted... Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. 
So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Decision from someone with such dry, straw-like hair. Anyway, now we have Sadiq, the first ever Muslim mayor of a major western city, which is very exciting and has already caused racists everywhere to claim that they'll never set foot in London again. Well done, Sadiq. You've already solved London's overcrowding problem brilliantly. Similarly, as these ratings seem to suggest on social media, if, now that Sadiq is mayor, London will fall, then I guess that'll be a swift way to ensure that housing prices finally drop. So, again, well done, Khan. So, it was a successful Labour win, especially as London has had a Conservative mayor for the last eight years. And many said that this was a rejection by multicultural London of Zach Goldsmith's disgusting racist campaign, where he stated that Khan had extremist connections and shared a platform with terrorists seemingly misunderstanding what Sadiq's job as a human rights lawyer was. I do sort of think that when Conservatives hear human rights, their brain immediately struggles, thinking, human rights? What's next? Where will it end? Animal rights? Special rights for children? I mean, it would be lovely to think that this is London all clubbing together to fight Islamophobia. But actually, if you look at the votes, there's a little bit more to it than individual campaigns. I mean, Zach Goldsmith got 994,614 votes from people who think they're too posh for Britain first. And that's 238,000 less than the Conservatives got for the whole of London. They received 34.9% of the overall London vote, which proves, sadly, that they're still pretty popular. Sadiq, on the other hand, received 1,310,143 votes, which is about 234,000 votes less than the overall Labour London vote. Labour got 43.7% of London votes, so sort of in line with their party performances, both Zach and Sadiq did pretty much the same as each other. So really, and perhaps depressingly when it comes to London's multicultural fight against Islamophobia, it's probably more a case of the Tories never really doing well in cities compared to Labour. You know, rather than everyone in the capital heading to some sort of moral high ground that in London, let's be honest, would probably cost too much to rent for us to spend any time on. Obviously, Boris was the exception to that kind of uh, being in line with the party rule for eight years because he had such a character. You know, he had, he had floppy hair, didn't he? And floppy hair is really funny. God, I hate people. 
And this was all repeated in all the mayoral elections in England. You know, a Labour mayor won in Liverpool and in Salford, which in part is probably down to cities having more obvious housing and living cost issues, rather than out in the countryside sticks where rich people can have those sort of things cleared off their land by butlers with guns. I mean, I think that's what happens, and it's why I dress as a hedgerow when leaving London so that I don't stand out. Though Labour also won the mayorship in Bristol with their candidate Marvin Rees. It was previously held by independent candidate George Ferguson, so if nothing else, Labour are definitely doing well against individuals called George, which I suppose could be helpful if Osborne becomes Tory leader for 2020. England! As for the rest of England, well, uh, in 2015 the Conservatives had 35% share of the vote, and Labour had 29% share. And this time round in 2016, the Conservatives had 30% of the vote, and Labour had 31%. Which all sounds like Labour are doing better than the Conservatives, until you look at the 2012 election, where Labour had 38% of the vote and the Conservatives had 31% of the vote. Or if you look at 1979, when the Conservatives had roughly 52% of the vote share and Labour had roughly 35%. Or if you look back to 1900, when the Labour Party didn't exist, they had 0% of the vote, but the Conservatives had 49% of the vote under Lord Salisbury, so maybe Cameron needs to grow an awesome beard or something. I mean, Labour did fine making some good gains like Bristol, but losing others like Dudley, and the Conservatives lost a fair few seats and overall control of some councils, but these local elections were in several quite strong Labour seats anyway. I mean, ultimately, look at the Lib Dems for real results. They did a total Jon Snow and leapt from death straight to 39 seats, which we can only assume was done by magic. Or maybe someone found them under a rock, which meant that they got some sunlight and water and just multiplied while we weren't looking. I mean, who really knows? Also, very sadly, UKIP gained 26 council seats, though on the plus side, they probably won't turn up, ever, or will be fired within weeks after doing something completely ridiculous. So yeah, there's always hope. Wales! Labour lost overall control of the Welsh Assembly by just two seats after Plaid Cymru's leader Leanne Wood snaffled Rhonda Valley from them, which was probably because she was acting all nice and looks a lot like the sort of person who'd do a damn good cake stall at a school fair, and yeah, I would totally vote for that. UKIP also gained seats in Wales, including wins from Mark Reckless, who is a proper victim of nominative determinism, and constantly looks like he's doing a difficult shit. He also doesn't think that his Irish wife is an EU migrant, because he doesn't understand anything. Another UKIP candidate that gained a seat on the Welsh Assembly was fucking disgraced former MP Neil Hamilton, because people can't use the internet in Mid and West Wales region, obviously. Hamilton is currently bidding to lead UKIP in the Assembly, presumably so that all the others will have to give him brown envelopes if they want to have any questions asked. And Labour's losses? Well, they're partly down to the rise of UKIP, possibly because Syrian refugee families have been resettled to places like Carefilly. But it's also possibly because, as I said in episode 15, people feel like Labour have let them down on issues like the NHS, which is partly due to the Conservatives cutting the Welsh Assembly's budget for the NHS. So, Jeremy Corbyn should probably resign, right? Scotland! Last, but most certainly not least, Scotland, who have, since the independence referendum in 2014, developed their very own special brand of fuck you Westminster politics. The SNP were just short of a majority in last week's elections, with the Conservatives coming second and Labour dropping all the way down to third. And what does that mean? Well, I guess it means that Labour are still being punished for allying with the Conservatives to keep Scotland in Britain despite, after keeping the Union, not giving Scotland any of the powers they were promised. The referendum was very much, hey, please stay at the party, and then once they did, Scotland had to entertain itself with a lighter and flat lemonade while everyone else had sex upstairs. K 
Kezia Dugdale has only been leader of the Scottish Labour Party since last August and hasn't yet persuaded votes that she isn't another Jim Murphy, a man that was so unconvincing as a politician he couldn't even win a vote of no confidence. And so Scotland is now split between left-centre cultural nationalism, which is the SNP, or conservative unionism. Uh, Labour being sandwiched somewhere in the middle of both of those and very much getting fucked on both sides. Which could be very enjoyable if Liberal Democrat Willie Rennie wasn't watching, constantly trying to have a go too. Labour's losses meant that the Conservatives gained as Unionist voters went for the candidates most likely to beat the SNP. Especially as Conservative Scotland leader Ruth Davidson has a personality and is one of the few Tory politicians who seems to actually be able to drink a bite without looking at it in fear as though gulping it down might give them emotions. The SNP not having a majority is interesting too though as it does mean that they'll probably try to stay left of the Conservatives making them more central and I suppose that may then leave a gap for Labour to come back as a left or centre-left party. It also means that without a majority another independence referendum is unlikely to happen anytime soon. Which is a shame, as I'd sort of hoped that they'd have Indie Ref 2, Temple of Doom. Or I suppose, chronologically, Indie Ref, The Last Crusade, which is probably quite a confusing title for such an event. So yeah, Scotland's results are pretty clear and will probably have an impact on the general election in 2020, unless something drastically changes. Otherwise, I mean really, you can take what you want from the rest of last week's results. In fact, go on, you decide. You, you see what they mean. Have a bit of fun with it. Oh, this means the Conservatives may have to sit upside down in Parliament unless they eat more fish. And oh, last week's results mean that Labour will only rip, win a raffle if John McDonnell doesn't sing, etc, etc. I mean, trust me, whatever you do, it'll be far more interesting than most pundits have been churning out. Oh, and in the Police and Crime Commissioner elections... Sorry, sorry. I seem to have dozed off. Right, now back to Evan. It kind of looked like a very thought-through process to put Whittingdale in the position of Culture Secretary. Um, I mean, judging by sort of what he's planning to do with the BBC, where he replaced the Trust Board with uh, government-appointed people uh, and well, the cuts that he's made across there as well. That's his proposal. I mean, I don't know. The Prime Minister's entitled to choose whoever as Culture Secretary, and certainly John Whittingdale, having been chair of the Select Committee for many years, knew the field. It's also true that his policy is hostile to the BBC, which pleases Rupert Murdoch and pleases Paul Dacre and pleases the owners of The Telegraph. But some of that is government policy and not necessarily his own view, although unless they're complete puppets or vegetables, as Mrs Thatcher had them in the spitting image sketch, members of the cabinet presumably bring their own expertise and their own views to government policy in these areas. But it is certainly true that what he is doing in respect to the BBC, uh, which again we don't support because it undermines the independence of the BBC and undermines its ability to provide good public interest journalism, um, is something that would meet approval with the, of those editors and those proprietors who had this information on his private life. So again, you've got to look at the, circum, the circumstantial evidence, and all we said is that this requires investigation. So come on, journalists, investigate. And what we found was that no journalists from the press wanted to investigate, and it was left to Newsnight and, and in fact, to Private Eye. To, to publish the allegations that he was uh, being 
implicitly, if not explicitly, blackmailed. Do you think that... Uh, I mean, because I mean, it seems like investigative journalism is under threat in general. You know, the, the future of the print press seems to be endangered uh, and there seems to be a lot less money in journalism. So, I mean, do you think that partly affects some of the investigative nature of stories as well? Well, it's certainly true that investigative journalism is expensive. And it's certainly true that some newspaper margins have been diminished because of the ability of people to get their news either from uh, broadcast websites or still in the majority from trusted non-partisan news sources such as uh, the BBC and ITV or indeed from, uh, from internet sources which may or may not be reliable and may or may not be partisan. So there's less money available. But what's bizarre about the way the press are behaving is that Leveson recognised this and said that he wanted to set up a system of incentives whereby if you were a member of this regulator that had passed its MOT, our friend again, there, and you were sued for libel in the courts rather than in the cheap arbitration system you would offer as part of that regulator, then the oligarch that was suing you and tried to stop you writing about um, uh, his financial dealings would have to pay both sides' costs, win or lose, or certainly at least the newspaper wouldn't have to pay the other side's costs, um, even if they lost. Now, that's important because at the moment, one of the costs of investigative journalism, if you're investigating something worth investigating, whether it be Jimmy Savile or bank malpractice or you know Tesco's banks or... or, or, or Tiernan's tax returns. Um, <laughs> I, hope, I hope not. Yeah. <laughs> risk of being sued, and therefore you need to pay an insurance premium. If you didn't have to pay that insurance premium, all that money could be invested back into good investigative journalism. I mean, you'd still be liable to pay damages if you libeled someone, but at least they're usually a tenth of the cost of the the lawyer's fees. And only and, and investigative websites and investigative newspapers find it hard to afford that. I mean, Rupert Murdoch can't complain about the cost of investigative journalism because he spent $500 million paying lawyers uh, on the hacking crisis to, to cover up and to, and to pay damages. So, so I don't accept that from the big newspaper bosses. But yes, there's a problem with investigative journalism. Implementing Leveson is a significant step to solving that problem. Yeah, I, d- I didn't know that about the uh, about Leveson's recommendations. Yeah, that does seem the paper. quite. Yeah, it seems quite quite crazy that if they implemented them, it would allow them to do probably better work. Uh, I mean, better investigations. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, how, uh, wow. I mean, th- I think one of the interesting things is because uh, obviously I, I've known about Hacked Off through, uh, through your campaigns with, with the, the phone hacking scandal and during Leveson. Um, but I... I sort of wonder if the general public are ever aware of kind of the extent of press ownership and, um, you know, how 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 much of a free press we don't have. Because I thought after the news of the world crisis, I you know, I'm, I was never a fan of the Murdoch papers anyway. But I immediately said, right, I'm not going to buy those. I'm not going to use those for news anymore. But they still sell a lot, don't they? And, and you know, uh, the sun still sells loads. So why do you think the general public don't seem to mind well, loads is, a, loads is a relative term. Many, many, many more people listen to the Today programme than by the sun. Many more people watch the six o'clock, ten o'clock BBC news bulletins than, than by the sun. How many people actually read the sun uh, as opposed to getting it for the sport or getting it for, 
for uh, for the particular bit that they like is much less than the number of people who the sun says read the sun. And nevertheless, you know, it serves a it serves a market, and it's entitled to serve that market. All we want is that it sticks to the industry's own rules, the code of practice, and that when they get it wrong, there is fair remedy uh, overseen by an effective and independent um, regulator. That's all we want. We don't want to change the way. It's not our business to change the way the sun, what the sun writes about. There are people who campaigned uh, and still do, actually, because of other newspapers against page three. That's never been part of the code because it's a question of taste and decency. Um, I have a view on it, but it's not a, you know, hacked off don't have a view. It's about getting fair remedy. And I think the press exaggerate their own importance in terms of setting the news agenda. They are, print sales are declining. I don't rejoice in that. I don't, I don't bemoan that. That's a question of the market. But let's, let, what's very important is that, that independent sources of news that are non-partisan, like the BBC, are not undermined, because that will give more influence to the partisan news sources, whether it be from the left or the right. Sure. Do you think papers like the New Day started uh, earlier this year, and that's meant to be unopinionated news? Do you think that's uh, that's progress? Things like that. Um, it's not clear. I mean, I regret the because that hasn't gone well for the Mirror Group, and the Mirror Group is spending millions and millions of pounds uh, following uh, the cover up of their own hacking crisis, which was which was wider, deeper, and longer than occurred in the news of the world. It's not often known. And, and right. they say, oh, hacked off some left-wing group, only attacks the Murdoch papers. The Mirror were worse. We've been almost alone. I mean, there's been some coverage in The Guardian and some coverage in The Independent in exposing the, the, the extent of the hacking that went on for, for, for years and years across three national newspapers involving multiple journalists. Um, so, so it's not the case that this is the... This is the the sun only, but the new day, which was brought out by that newspaper, would have benefited from the market a marketing budget of you know even ten percent of what they're spending on lawyers following their cover up. So it's hugely regretting, oh, hugely regrettable, that the criminal wrongdoing is costing you know circulation of decent newspapers, circulation of any newspapers and journalist jobs. Um, I regret the passing of the Independent uh, as a non as a slightly less partisan newspaper than the others that's been unfortunate i don't think the new day will make any difference here or there i I didn't know that about the mirror at all that's uh yeah so if you look at our website you'll find that if you look at if you look at right-wing websites they'll say hacked off never mention the mirror it's the the sun doesn't cover the mirror and the mirror doesn't cover the sun it's (laughs) it's uh it's a mafia and that's why we rely on broadcasters that aren't, don't have their news purely led from the newspaper reviews and the newspaper headlines, which is a phenomenon we're somewhat worried about. Um, and and I say the only newspaper still in print that's really covered newspaper malpractice well is The Guardian. And if it wasn't for The Guardian, it, the whole hacking story may never have come out. And they were under huge pressure from their colleagues in the press to kowtow and not to rock the boat and you know there's you know and there's still hate mail the guardian are blamed for murdoch closing the news of the world when it was murdoch that closed the news of the world we didn't call for that 
The Guardian didn't call for it. It was Murdoch's attempt to rescue his brand. Wow. Thank goodness for The Guardian. I um, I was going to say, if... if um. If people are sort of interested in in doing something about this, obviously they can they can look up hacked off and you're on Twitter and on your own website. Um, is there anything else that they should be looking at? Is there anything else that that people could um, pay attention to or perhaps do themselves if they're interested in 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 uh, having a free press? Well, if they sign the Leveson now declaration alongside uh, scores of people from the from the creative industries, you know strong supporters of free speech and human rights lawyers and film directors and poets and writers. So the idea that we are anti-free speech and that it's only Dacre and Murdoch calling for free speech is rubbish. If they sign the Leveson Now Declaration on our website, then they'll get our newsletters, which have um, calls for action. And this is a campaign because it doesn't get much coverage in the newspapers that has to be well coordinated. And we exist to coordinate that campaign and also to represent victims of press abuse because we've had six previous um, public inquiries before Leveson and none of them succeeded in changing the way the press ran because politicians were able to, the press were able to do a deal with politicians to ditch the recommendations. That's why Dacre and Murdoch hate hacked off more than anything else because we've not let the victim voice be drowned out. We've not gone away and we're still holding the Prime Minister to account. And I'm confident that we will eventually get this through. Many thanks to Evan for speaking to me and making things impressively clear. Do you see what I did there? Yes, yes, I know. I need pun regulation. Uh, you can find Evan on Twitter at Dr. Evan Harris, D R E V A N. H-A-R-R-I-S and Hacked Off are to be found at Hacking Inquiry on Twitter or on their website hackinginquiry.org which is full of further information about it all as well as containing a link to the Leveson Royal Charter Declaration if you'd like to sign it. Next week I'm going to be speaking to Arik Chowdhury from Webroots Democracy about voter apathy and why we don't yet have online voting. If you have any questions you'd like me to ask him in particular, well, I mean, tough, because by the time you hear this, I've already interviewed him. But, you know, feel free to send me those questions anyway, and I'll respond abruptly telling you how pointless it was. The question of the week returns. So, this week, I asked you lot via the tweeting hole in the Book of Faces what you think Zach Goldsmith should do career-wise now. I mean, obviously, he still has his MP seat for Richmond Park and North Kingston, but after his mayoral campaign has been slurred by, well, everyone except his mum, who said that he was the least racist person she knew, which suggests she knows a lot of real hardcore racists. Since that, Zach is probably going to be relegated to the backbenchers for the rest of eternity, which will leave him a ton of free time to do any of these lovely jobs that you've all suggested. I won't lie, I don't think you lot like him very much. At Duke Ardvark says, given the tone of his campaign, press officer for Britain first? Which I like, but I think the problem with that is that Zach didn't want to appear racist, but did. And I worry that if he did PR for Britain first, he'd somehow manage to make them sound, by accident, kind of quite nice. At one Rafs, R-A-F-Z, he said, uh, dog whistler for pampered pooches in Hampstead. Lovely work. At Captain's Tune says that he should be diversity officer for the greater London area. Um, at Matthew G. Pierce says that Zach should dedicate the rest of his political life to championing ethnic minorities and religious tolerance. The only problem I have with that is the rest of his political life is what, maybe just until 2020? I mean, I really can't see it lasting much longer than that. 
at Bobo DJ. Uh, he, he's an on-screen pilot assistant for the Soyuz rocket. Again, I mean, considering how far Zach's campaign managed to send politics backwards, I'm not sure he'd be much help in furthering the progress of humanity. Uh, Vizzy Rascal reckons Zach should sit quietly in a corner and think about what he did wrong. I mean, he's going to be there a long, long time. Um, at Matt Hoss Comedy, who's a Parpol Bro helper, uh, he said that he should follow another goldsmith, and I think in this case he means Stuart Goldsmith, who does the excellent ComCom pod, uh, Comedians Comedian Podcast, do check that out. Uh, he should follow another goldsmith and start a pod called ConCon Pod, Conservatives Conservative Podcast, where he interviews twats. Uh, at Lovegraphs says that he should be a Bollywood film critic, which would be incredible. Every single review would just be, um, I liked it, I am a fan, and then he wouldn't be able to even name what he saw, who was in it, and probably didn't watch it in the first place. Uh, at Bored Stupid uh, said a barman. At Stu Privet said uh, he should ask Ken Livingston to go on TV and defend him, which would be an incredible death wish. It's sort of become the new uh, getting Cameron to say that he has full confidence in you, hasn't it? I, I reckon Ken would probably try his best to defend Zach Goldsmith before somehow comparing him to Hitler 15 times and then ruining it for everyone. Um, the Plague Doc says that Zach Goldsmith should do a milk round, which considering uh, Zach's previous relationship shenanigans, I'm not sure that's the best of ideas. Uh, Louis D. Strong says he should do Panto. Linton Crosby's behind this. Uh, that might work. Um, at Nigel Mutt says he should run down Regent Street naked with Katie Hopkins shoved up his ass while reciting the Rubiat of Omar Khayyam. Um, Jesus. And uh, at Scott McKeating says he should live in a pit of excrement brewed from cats fed only on sour milk. He can be the boss of the pit. Well, I guess someone has to be. And... Uh, Lastly, Gavin Kernow says he could be a cabbie, and I guess yeah, he's definitely got the right racist opinions for that. Uh, Sam Phillips 13 sent me an advert for a paintball bullet tester at 40 grand a year to get shot at. Well, I guess Zach doesn't need the money, he could just volunteer and do it for the community. And my favourite this week was Matt of Kilburnia, who says that Zach Goldsmith, he should just fuck off. <laughs> And that's all for this week's show. Next week, I have a horrible feeling that with or without EU will be back. I'm sorry to everyone for that. Uh, if you fancy sending a better jingle for it before then, then please do email one over to partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. I mean, I'm guessing it's probably going to be a weekly feature until the referendum in June 23rd. So it would be nice if someone who can actually sing or play the accordion sent me something rather than us having to hear my wailing every single week. I mean, as if all the boring campaign rhetoric wasn't bad enough. As always, if you're a listener to this show, then please do tell others about it and give us a nice review on iTunes if you can. Follow us on Twitter at Bro or on Facebook at Bro too. And if you're not a listener, then perhaps send me a psychic signal explaining exactly how you knew that I'd said this on the show. I mean, how did you know? Or perhaps you have synthesis and you just smell this show every week, in which case, please let me know what it smells like. I'm guessing by recent politics, probably a good percentage of it whiffs of bullshit. This week's show was brought to you by pretty much the same numbers as last week, but you may wish to say it's a lot less or a lot more, depending on your agenda. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out at the French Open for a chance to win a Grand Slam title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. See the action unfold as legends fight for glory and new rivalries emerge. 
Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th, with match replays on demand so you never miss a moment. From the first serve to the final point, Roland Garros promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs> 